and, and it can seem like a massive expense because if you just do it on one machine, well, you're not running lights out. You got to do it on all machines to get the lights out. And you're like, well, 40 machines, that's a lot of money. So, but what I would say is don't not do it. Just get started and evolve as you go. And eventually you'll get there. You're going to get efficiencies from, you know, your first machine that you do and converting your second, third, but you have to change the culture. A lot of training involved. Um, you're listening to Making It in Ontario the official podcast of the Trillium Network for Advanced Manufacturing. Hello and welcome to another episode of Making It in Ontario, the official podcast of the Trillium Network for Advanced Manufacturing. I'm your host, Nick Persichilli. And in today's episode, I chat with David Yeeman, president of Molded Precision Components, about his company's history, about Industry 4.0, about Medica Park and Oro Medante, and a protracted discussion about culture. So regarding Industry 4.0, David provided some additional insights on the subject and reiterated a lot of what's been said on this podcast before, which was encouraging. Things like the importance of starting your Industry 4.0 journey despite the challenges, to start your journey on something small and easily measurable, how to build your digital infrastructure out from that first component, and how to use the data to your company's benefit. It was great to see that we were both on the same page about this specific subject because he's been integrating Industry 4.0 technology since, well, before it was called Industry 4.0. We also discussed Medica Park and Oro Medante, how it came to be, and what the future holds for it. If you don't know what it is, see the timestamp below for our discussion on the subject. It's a great story and a great project. It's an example of what Ontario manufacturing can accomplish when put to the test. And as mentioned, we had a long discussion about culture and its effects on a business. Company culture is one of the most important variables in the success or failure of a company. However, it's also the most difficult to A, measure, and B, change. Over the course of our conversation, it became clear that David understood this very well and gave me some stories of how MPC viewed their own culture when planning their operations and their growth strategy. As the interview continued, it became clear to me that David's and MPC's operating philosophy lined up almost perfectly with Trillium's recommendations in our reports on workforce development. So much so that at one point during the interview, I quasi-jokingly asked him if he'd read our reports and was just reading our recommendations back to us. Luckily, he hadn't. It's great to know that two different organizations can come to similar conclusions even when working on the problem from different realities. So what about culture did we discuss exactly? Why is it so important? Well, David gave us the hyper-relevant example of Industry 4.0 technology adoption and all the challenges therein. We've talked about them here before. Adopting new technology can be a scary thing, especially when it's your company, your shop floor. Adopting new technologies comes, yes, with a lot of benefit, but it also comes with inherent risk. If the culture in your company values innovation, then risk is just another normal part of the day. But if your company culture values stability, well, investing in new tech is not a simple initiative to undertake. People will need to be retrained. Processes will need to be updated. There will be an adjustment period with any new technology. Will this encourage or stress out your managers? David attributed MPC's success in Industry 4.0 adoption to a healthy culture of innovation. He has a point. Perhaps the most important lesson on culture that David gave me was one that I kind of already knew but really needed to be reminded about. Culture takes time to develop. 
and it doesn't come from mission statements. Don't get me wrong, mission statements are fine, but they're only as useful or as effective or as good or bad as the decisions they inform and the actions they inspire. So have a listen to how David cultivated the culture at MPC over the years and how the strength of their own team allowed them to not only survive the most challenging economic times in Ontario, but to thrive in them. Here's how they're making it in Ontario. There you go. There's the audible uh, recording notice. Hello, David. Good, uh, good morning. Good morning, Nick. How are you today? I am well. Thank you for joining us today. This, uh, th- this episode kind of came together uh, pretty quickly. Um, I know that we've been wanting to chat with you for a while now. And uh, thank you for agreeing to chat with me. Uh, rather than uh, go off on another tangent, why don't I let you introduce yourself and MPC? Yeah, so I'm David Yeaman. I'm the uh, co-owner of Molded Precision Components here in Oro Medante. We're a uh, precision plastic injection molder in the uh, automotive and medical space. Wonderful. And I just some real quick background. MPC, I just doing some uh, quick history. You guys were founded in 1980, right? Yeah. So yeah, with the history. So you know, it started in 1980. This is pre uh, myself and my business partner had, had purchased the assets of the business. Uh, it was a small uh, shop. It was uh, a German uh, toolmaker who made small prototype uh, components for the automotive industry. Um, and come 2006, he pretty much just wound it down to to virtually nothing. And uh, it was uh, it was in a local area where I lived, and uh, I lived just north of Barrie and in, 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 uh, Shandy Bay. And uh, you know, I historically had to drive to Toronto to find meaningful work as an engineer. So. Um, and same with my business partner. So lots of commuting, right? And what I was passionate about was trying to develop jobs that are local to where people work, you know, live where you where you work, right? Rather than commuting, because it's such a, has a, such a toll on one's lifestyle. So when we saw the opportunity, uh, it was close to my home. I uh, connected my uh, with my uh, longtime friend and, um, and co-worker at many other organizations, Thomas Woger, uh, he's a mechanical engineer. I'm a mechanical engineer. And we had been in plastics uh, all our career at that point in time. We were about 33 years old. And, uh, you know, this business uh, was winding down and we saw the opportunity to buy the assets of that business uh, and turn it into something different. And that was in 2006. So we bought it in 2006 and, uh, and it was virtually dormant. And our vision was to be able to turn it into a lights out mass manufacturing uh, automotive plastics facility. And that we did over the next uh, the next decade. Lights out. Can you give us a quick for for the uninformed? Give us a quick explanation about what that means. Yeah, so uh, we're staffed during the day, so basically from eight till four thirty, uh, and when we all go home, the production continues. <laughs> so uh, we've automated uh, all our molding machines with uh, sensors and robotics for moving parts, uh, packaging the parts, um, and automation systems to to handle the parts. So huge amount of investment in technology, uh, even early in, in 2006, before Industry 4.0 was really a thing. In order to run lights out, uh, it's a lot harder than you think. Uh, you imagine molding a component; it uh, it looks simple when you watch it on a YouTube video, but you know there's a 1,256 different things that can go wrong at any one time, from a, a blown fuse to a loose wire to uh, a hose being pinched or hose wearing and breaking. Uh, on top of all the other technology that that's in the equipment machines that you're using. So everything that you do has to be done to perfection and you have to be able to 
identify issues before they happen. And this is when we started on our industry 4.0 journey, let's say, uh, pre it being called industry 4.0. So it was 2007 and we had our, our first reject and um, we looked at each other and said, well, you know, we know what we need to do. We've been at other places in our careers where, you know, you do, uh, it's called an AD problem solving analysis when you have a failure to identify a root cause and then put in a permanent corrective action. Well, historically, permanent corrective action was, you know, updating the process, retrain operator, which we all know isn't a permanent corrective action. It, it will return. So there, there's a natural inherent scrap rate that you'll have things that go wrong. So, you know, updating operator instructions and updating the master setup, it doesn't actually solve that problem. So we knew that we had to find ways to be able to monitor the process uh, in, in, from an automatic standpoint. So we added our first sensors to the molds, um, which is through a system called RJG. And that allowed us to be able to monitor the process real time and be able to set limits uh, on various processes uh, to accept and reject the parts and identify that something's gone wrong before we actually even open a mold. And that was sort of where it all started. And that gave us the, the ability to monitor the process, control the process, shut down the process if, in fact, uh, things were out of specification. Um, and that was the very start, our very first sensor. And we knew that uh, we had to invest in that. And historically, at other companies, it's hard to get the capital in order to do that. And you have to change the entire culture of the organization and do it right across the board for it to be actually effective. You know, having one machine that's able to run overnight, it doesn't do any good when you've got 10 other ones that don't run overnight, right? So whatever you do, you have to do systemically throughout your entire organization. So with that answer, you've basically covered almost all of the topics that we have gone over in this podcast series, investment in, in, uh, in new technology, industry 4.0, adoption, all of that stuff. I, don't, I almost don't even know where to start. So let, let, let's, let's delve into that a little bit more because investment in industry 4.0 tech, we've been saying, other people have been saying, it's the only way Ontario stays competitive. And it sounds like you and your team have been on that path for a while now. So if I could, or if you could give us some insights and I take this answer wherever you want to take it, what insights would you have for a company, a manufacturer, whether they're in your space or not, what advice would you have for them if they're looking to start their journey of really getting into industry 4.0? Yeah, I'd be happy to. Um, you know, I, I worked with IRAP in doing talks to um, other small to medium-sized enterprises to help inspire people to try to um, get involved in industry 4.0. And I think, you know, it's very intimidating when you're at a small, medium-sized uh, organization. You know, you think, well, this, this stuff is for the Magnus of the world and, you know, Siemens and these big, big organizations, and you have to be a big multinational and um, because it's seemingly really, really expensive, but it's, it's very misunderstood what industry 4.0 is, right? So people, what is it exactly? Well, we have sensing capabilities. We have the internet of things. We have all these tools that we didn't have historically. So if you go back, you know, 30 years, well, you know, the cost of this technology, even if it existed was beyond reach, but over time, sensors, uh, again, the internet, and technology has developed so quickly that it's given us tools that are actually cost-effective that we can actually afford now. So, you know, you get stuck with this mindset that, oh, it's really expensive. Well, yeah, it used to be, right? The first fax machine was $3,500. Now they're, they're, they're free, <laughs> right? Is that so, true? <laughs> around there, yep. Wow. So, yeah, imagine being the guy who bought the first fax machine. Who do you fax? No one else <laughs> has a second one, right? Seriously. Yeah. So... 
So, but right. So you got to understand that a sensor that used to cost, you know, $1,200 is now a hundred dollars or $50. So it's about getting started. So for us, it was, it started with one sensor, right? We, we, we had an injection mold and we wanted to know what's going on within the cavity so that we can identify the process and control that process. And by adding that sensor to that one cavity was the birth of our, our, our whole industry 4.0 journey. It started with one sensor. So, you know, we, we put in the system, it was, it was seemingly expensive as we were a startup at the time, but really it, as far as, um, you know, cost it for implementation, it was, it's uh, the payback is definitely there. And now, you know, we have thousands of these sensors throughout every single mold that we have in our facility. And, and it, it, it has to be done throughout everything that you do. So you just start with one sensor, pick something that's going to have uh, something that's infrastructure related is what I normally say. So things that supply your entire process. So, you know, we have 40 molding machines while our compressor feeds all 40 machines. If it goes down, well, my whole plant goes down, right? So, or our water systems that cools them. Well, if that goes down, the whole plant goes down. So what are the things that could go wrong? And then how do you put a sensor on that such that you can wrap parameters around it so that you can identify before it becomes an issue that, and, and before it becomes an issue so that such that you can fix it before it shuts your whole plant down. So I would just encourage people just start with one sensor on something that will have a relatively large impact on your organization. So I, I love the fact that you said that because what you just said mirrors very closely what was said by uh, some friends of ours at the Axiom Group and Smart Attend with regards to Industry 4.0, which is apply the tech you need, only the tech you need to the problem you're looking to solve. Because one of the challenges that, that, that some of our stakeholders have told us is they need to have Industry 4.0 demystified because there seems to be, and yeah, David, you hit everything on the head. It, traditionally, it was thought to be expensive. Now it's not expensive anymore. Great. It's, it's available. Okay. But now what? What problem? So with you and your team and your shop floor, it was all about, you guys wanted to know what, what was happening inside the mold, right? Yeah, correct. And then you've applied that specific piece of tech to get that answer, right? Yeah. And then once you got that answer, you could almost build out from that. Is that, is that kind of what you did? So it's like, okay, now we know what's happening in this mold. What else is happening? Is that fair to say? Exactly. What it did actually, and it gave us so much more insight than, than what we even dreamed that it would have. Originally, it was to identify whether the part was a, what we call a short shot or not. So if you don't have enough plastic in the mold, well, then you get, a, you get half a part. So it's called a short shot. So you put a sensor in at the, where, where the part fills out last. And then if there's no pressure there, then it means that the part is short. Um, therefore it's a bad part. And then we can use a signal from that system to reject the part. Um, but once we hooked it up, we realized you're learning everything that you can uh, possibly imagine about the process more than just whether it's short, but you know, your fill times, your gate seal, your, um, your shorts, your overpressurization where you get flash. So it also allowed us to optimize the process because you can see the actual entire pressure curve which allows us to identify things that you would have never been able to see through, through any traditional engineering method. So now allowed us to be able to optimize those processes. Um, in addition to just identifying the reject, it allowed us to be able to reduce the amount of rejects, uh, optimize the process, optimize cycle times, um, and of course, be able to identify things uh, you know, before the part even got out of the mold if something was going wrong. So let me go, let's go back to 2006 for a second. You've just made this investment. 
in this company two years before 2008 happened. So I, I, I think you know where I'm going with this. What can you tell me about what happened between 2006 and 2008 and then shortly thereafter? And if you could also talk about how, te- how this technology, did it help you? How did it help you? Because there's a belief that if you don't challenge, if you're, if you're not challenged enough, you're not really going to evolve. So that was quite the challenging year, I would imagine. Correct. Yeah, it was, uh, again, we started in 2006, myself and my business partner literally mortgaged our homes to start the business. Again, we bought the assets of it. It was dormant. It was just a couple molding machines, some basic tooling equipment. So we had a long way to go from what it was to, I like to, you know, mass manufacturing uh, automotive facility. So, you know, we had uh, a lot of experience in the automotive and, and, um, you know, we were slugging away trying to get whatever business we could. There was a little bit of legacy uh, customers there that we started banging down the doors. But of course, when you're small, um, you know, large organizations say, well, you're only two guys or three guys, you know, Magna's not going to give you a big book of business. So um, you have to build that up and get that momentum. So, you know, if someone asked us to dig a hole, we would have dug a hole <laughs> at that point in time. So we would do whatever it took. So, you know, we, we, we built up uh, business with some legacy customers through, uh, through some prototyping projects that we got transformed into production. And we were just getting going with no wage for the first two years, literally. And then of course the recession hit, which was, you know, who saw that coming? But what we did is we said, well, we're either in this to succeed or fail. And what happened with the recession was a lot of people did fail. And because we were small and we already knew how to survive with nothing, you know, we didn't have big loans to be recalled. You're not getting money when you're starting up. All you have is a $50,000 line of credit. So you're not heavily leveraged other than our, our homes at that point. So we knew how to live with nothing. So we could get through it. And as the recession um, continued on, you know, companies started going bankrupt. And we had already, uh, pre-2008, launched uh, our first, a uh, couple first of our automotive programs, which we had implemented this technology and we had had, you know, larger customers like Magna and Multimatic and so on, like in our facilities. And like, this is amazing what you guys are doing. You're running lights out. You've uh, got these sensing systems for quality. Like, this is awesome what you're doing, but you're just too small. But fortunately, we had already sort of laid the, the groundwork with these customers. So when um, half the plastics industry went bankrupt in plastic injection molding, these molds had to go somewhere. And uh, we went to all the auctions and actually to auctions at companies that we used to work at that had gone. And these are companies that were, it was a billion dollar company that, that went, uh, went bankrupt. And we bought as much as we could. We literally borrowed money from our parents and, and whatever money that we had generated. Uh, and we had bought as much capital equipment as we possibly could. Because then I was describing to people, if you were to go to a garage sale and everything you ever wanted in your life was there for 10 cents on the dollar, you would find the money to go buy it. So if your $100,000 Porsche was sitting there for 10 grand, you would go find that money, right? You know, or that swimming pool or that boat, if those things matter to you. So we said the same thing, these auctions, machining, it was so saturated that equipment was going for 10 cents on the dollar. So we found as much money as we could and we bought as much equipment and robotics and material feed systems, things that we couldn't have otherwise afforded through a normal uh, development of a business we wouldn't have been able to afford it at its normal you know, new price or even, even a used 50% price. So we bought up as much as we could. We installed the machines. I bought more robots than we had molding machines. I had robots in storage. They were so cheap. Bought entire central material handling systems that were worth hundreds of thousands of dollars for $10,000. And we personally installed all that ourselves and we got all that in place. 
so what that gave us was a whole pile of idle capacity where our, all our customers are going, well, we got to place these molds somewhere. They still got to make a car. So for the companies that went bankrupt, they were, well, where does the business go? And of course, you know, we had already sort of laid the, the groundwork. They'd seen what we were doing. They knew it was new. They knew it was different. There was nobody else doing lights out manufacturing like we were. Although we were small at this point, people really didn't have a choice. If you had capacity, they were going to use it. So all of a sudden we got all kinds of transfer business and it filled up all the machines that we had. And that really rocketed us. We started growing at 25 to 35% from there. So we brought in nine new customers in the first year of the recession. Literally, we did a mass mail out, I believe it back, to, I say back then in 2007 and eight, but I mean, we literally did a mail out of 5,000 flyers of, um, and it said Canadian made parts at near China prices. And we could claim that because we could get near that based on running lights out and reducing all the labor and the efficiencies we had and uh, mailed out 5,000 of those flyers. And wouldn't you believe it? Frank Stronach actually got one. I remember stuffing that envelope and putting that, that sticker on myself. We had all our family lined up and we're filling all these envelopes. And I remember looking at that and we used uh, uh, Scott's directory and you just did geographical searches and in industries and it would give you a printout. So we're using all those and you kind of vet it and I'm going through it. And there's, there's Frank Stronach and I was laughing when I stuffed it. Well, you know, wouldn't it be uh, three months later, I got a phone call from his head of global, global uh, purchasing that says, Frank asked me to give you a call. <laughs> so wow. it, yeah, it worked. And, uh, and that's how we got really engaged, uh, you know, starting with Magna. And then again, we developed nine new customers through that process uh, and started filling up all that capacity. And then it's just like, from there, it was reoccurring business from those customers. And then once you have some anchor, anchor um, uh, clients like Magna, then others go, oh, if you work for Magna, then, you know, you'd be fine for Multimatic, you'd be fine for Kongsberg, you'd be fine for whatever. So that, that gave us the, uh, um, the clout that we needed, let's say, I guess, um, or the confidence in those customers that, well, if we're working for those, then, then you, can, you can handle us. So we just grew 25 to 30% from there. And every machine we bought came with a robot, came with in-cabber pressure sensing systems. And we just continued to, um, let's say, call, I don't want to call it cookie cutter because it makes it too simple, but we, we followed the model through everything as we grew. So the one advantage we had is we sort of started with nothing. And then we had this mentality of lights out manufacturing, ultra efficiency, lean manufacturing right from the beginning. And we built it that way where a lot of companies will have a challenge now is to say, well, Hey, I've already got 40 machines and now I want to do this. Well, you've got to change the entire culture of your organization, right? This is new that people don't know what it is. It's new technology. You got training that some people don't want to adopt the technology. Um, and, and it can seem like a massive expense. So if you just do it on one machine, well, you're not running lights out. You got to do it on all machines to get the lights out. And you're like, well, 40 machines, that's a lot of money. So, but what I would say is don't not do it. Just get started and evolve as you go. And eventually you'll get there. You're going to get efficiencies from, you know, your first machine that you do and then converting your second and third, but you have to change the culture, a lot of training involved. Um, and so we didn't have to do that because, we were only four or five people when we hit the recession, you know, we were already doing this technology and everything we added had it. So we would just, people that got hired adopted the technology right away. Cause that's just the way we did business. So we didn't have to go through that, that culture change that one would have to do if you already had an existing facility. So, but don't let it stop you as my thing. You got to start somewhere. If you don't, for us, it started with one sensor and, uh, and we just keep amplifying that throughout everything that we have in our whole facility. I can, I can tell you what the oil temperature is in, in my compressor right now. I can tell you what the pressure differential is on the filter for the material feed system. 
And it's sending texts and emails out to various people saying, hey, it's time to change your filter before it shuts down your entire plant. Or your water, your water temperature is too high or your water level is dropping too low, which means you have a leak in a molding machine somewhere. So someone will get a text or an email. And that's what it all led to. So it started with, I always say, um, you know, there's a restaurant, two guys in a stove. So I say two guys in a molding machine. That's how it started, right? It started in one sensor and that's how we started, right? And that got us, you know, over a decade, we were, you know, we were running $10 million worth of business, 76 million parts a year with a PPM of less than one and 100% on-time delivery record with major multinational automotive customers. Now that's a flex. <laughs> Indeed. One, th- there's a phrase that kind of popped into my mind when you were telling me the story and it has to do with poker. Um, a buddy of mine I used to play with he, he would say, and no one understood what this meant. He's like, you got to be good to be lucky. It sounds to me like when you were investing in all that equipment on, you know, 10 cents on the dollar and it's like, oh, we got to get this. We got to get this. It's like, oh, they were lucky. Were they, or were they just good? The fact that you, yeah. Cause you, you, you were in a very fortuitous circumstance, but you definitely understood that you were in a fortuitous circumstance and it wasn't. And, and it's like, we need this machine. So you mentioned a lot of things in that in your answer there, and I was actually going to ask you about a lot of them. Uh, thank you for beating me to the punch. However, there is one that I want to get a little bit. Uh, I, I want to get some explanation from you on this question because you've mentioned it and we've identified it as a challenge. You said there needs to be a cultural shift from obviously from one thing to another. Can you tell me a little bit about how do you start that momentum and changing the culture? Because that's the hardest damn thing to change, isn't it? Yeah, it's definitely the hardest thing to change. And, you know, initially when we started, there's only a couple of people, you know, the culture was just us and what we desired, right? And we desired, you know, perfection in what we do and innovation and collaboration um, and integrity. Those are our three core values. But, you know, we're not focusing on the culture when we start. You're two engineers starting a business and you're on the floor, you're setting up molds, you're grinding parts, you're shipping, you're receiving, you're making tools, you're doing it all yourself. And it, it, you're not, you're not sitting there focusing on culture, you know, and especially as early business owners, right? We didn't run a business pre that. And, um, you know, as time developed and we uh, added more people to the team, we, we realized that, you know, it's not just about the technology, you know, we're two techies, right? Two engineers, two mechanical engineers, and we love robots and automation and lean manufacturing. And we're passionate about that. Um, but soon realized that, uh, hey, nothing happens without people beyond yourselves once you start to grow. So your people are your number one asset. You can buy all the equipment and technology in the world, but it means nothing because without the people. So somebody's got to run it. Somebody's got to set it up. Like we still have people during the day. We have to engineer it. We have to launch it. We have to maintain it. So, um, you know, first of all, you have to be clear about what culture that you're trying to um, instill in your organization. So you got to understand what that is um, and what your core values are. And that's got to be a, a consistent demonstration of that uh, through the leadership um, and, and training with your people to understand what your culture is, what we're trying to achieve and what it means to them. Like, what is the why? Like it, people change because they know what it, what it'll do for them, right? It's, it's great that does this for the organization, but what does it mean to me? So if people understand that, hey, this is our culture, this is why uh, we have a culture of this, and this is what it means to you, and that's a benefit to them, then they'll start to embrace that technology, that, that, um, that culture. So it, it takes a long time to change culture. This is not like, hey, 
you know, you know, a decade later, culture became a big thing. You know, it's all talking about cultures of organizations. Well, I mean, it, it took a good five years to ingrain the culture of what we're trying to do here. And that's even with, you know, at that time we didn't have, you know, we had 20, 25 people. Now we have 126. But, uh, but once you have that momentum, then, you know, it just becomes of everything you do. It's common language in what you do. Your other staff are embracing that. We do culture training on orientation with people go uh, start on and we continue to, to do ongoing training. And it's, it's, it's common language throughout the organization and, uh, and driving those, those core values and what you're trying to, what you're trying to achieve. Common language. I like that. We just put out a report that was a follow-up to another report that we put out back in February, specifically talking about this report specifically spoke about racialized women and how to get them more engaged in manufacturing. But that phrase that, you know, developing a common language that kind of struck a nerve because in that report, things like language are important because I know there are people there, there are company owners right now who let's say they will read that report and be like, yeah, this is fantastic, but I have no idea where to start. How do you start that discussion of shifting culture and how do you keep it going? Because it's, it, it feels like you're, you're basically trying to roll a stone up a hill and it's hard enough to get momentum in that stone up that hill. It has precious little of it once you get it going. And so like, how, how do you start it? Yeah. So our, like we actually went through a, a, a formal process of really, we said, what is our culture? Right. And then people, like, if you ask people like, what, what is your culture? And, and everybody, if everybody says something different, um, you know, before that, it wasn't, there wasn't this massive focus on, 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 on culture. It was just, it, it was what it was, you know, and people would just by what they feel in the organization. Well, I think this is what it might be. So, you know what, we actually put the management team together and said, what do you guys think our culture is? What is it? And what do we want it to be? And actually developed a culture statement wrapped around, just like you have a purpose statement, you have a mission statement, vision statement, we developed a culture statement. And that defined who we are, that we operate as a family with kindness and compassion for one another, and that we have a pursuit of excellence and excellence in everything we do. And we embrace integrity, collaboration, and innovation. So, you know, that got developed by us, you know, it's almost like a word cloud to start because everyone's sort of, what are we? Well, we're innovating. Okay, cool. So maybe that's part of what our culture is or, you know, integrity, right? Integrity, collaboration, innovation were the three key words that came out. But people say, what are your core values? And you don't know what they are. And you, 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 you might say, okay, well, here's 15 of them. Because it's hard because you're like, well, we're, we're all these things. And you say, yeah, but okay. So if you had to boil it down to three, someone challenged us with that. They said, you know, you got 15, you can maybe get it down to six. And they say, if you had to choose three <laughs> and you're like, wow, that's hard. Cause it, you almost feel like you're giving up the other values to be able to select those three. Doesn't mean that they don't mean anything to you, but what are the three core values that drive your organization? And just because you had to pick three, doesn't mean the other, you know, 12 that you chose don't mean anything to you, but you have to decide what they are. So once we had an, discussion with the management team we boiled it down we're going to come up with a culture statement that said this is who we are and these are our three core values and once we had that we went wow that's really gave some clarity now you have something to work to again just like your vision your mission statements like every decision you make is wrapped around that it's the same with your culture so once we had that in place then it was like okay well we've kind of now we know what we believe the culture is or we desire it to be and what our core values are 
how do we roll that out to the entire organization? So it's about, you got to make sure that it's systemic within your organization, right from the hiring process to an exit interview, right? So we have, uh, so first of all, we started with training. Uh, we put everybody uh, in, a, in a room and we had what we called culture training. We introduced the culture statement, what those core values are. We had some documents that helped define what is and is not. So we said, you know, integrity is ABC, but it is not this. So it gave really good examples. You can read it and see yourself. You could go, you know, it is ABC and you go, yeah, I do ABC and it's not you know, gossip or slander. You're like, yeah, sometimes I find myself around the cooler kind of talking about Bob, right? So now you can see yourself and how, you, how you're emulating those core values. Um, so we, we, we trained it to everybody. We explained to everybody where it came from, the process we went through. It was really the management team that put it together. It wasn't just me or Tom just saying, this is what it is. We were actually excluded from that process. They kept us out of it and said to the management team, what do you guys see it as? At the end of the day, then, then they came and said, this is what we think it is. And we went, you nailed it, which was great because they understood it. And they understood what we were a part of, which was great that they understood. They weren't far off, you know, we tweak it a little bit. And then away we went. So they own it now, right? The management team owned it because they actually crafted it. And they were able to do that because of their, of course, their interactions with us and knowing, knowing what our desires were and, and, and they desired the same. So then from there now, now you've got to ingrain it. So when we're talking about common language, you know, uh, the core values of integrity, um, innovation, collaboration, you know, and everything we're talking about, well, like it's, you know, it's, you know, we have collaborative spaces. Do we, are we, when we're trying to solve a problem, are we doing it collaboratively? Are we doing it with integrity? Is everybody telling the truth? Are you trying to hide that you made a mistake or do you have a different agenda than what we might have? You know, once you have everybody trained, then it has to be baked into everything you do in terms of, um, like I said, the hiring process. So you have to identify that when you're hiring people, do they share the same core values? Do they want the same things that you want? And one might say, well, just, you know, if one says, I really like to have a, a stable process and I do the same thing every day with not a lot of rapid change because I can't handle change really quickly. I'd be like, okay, part of what innovation is, is rapid change of everything we're doing, trying to improve what you're doing at all time, at all times, no matter what it is, whether it's improving keystrokes or software that you're working on or in the process, a manufacturing process, we're constantly changing and evolving. We're identifying, we're saying, hey, it works, but there's a better way and we're changing. So this might be an environment where there's rapid change all the time. We might move a machine one week and you know, that'll birth a couple new ideas and say, oh, let's move it again. They're like, we just moved it. I'm like, so we should just leave it there because we came up, because we just did it, even though there's a better way. You know, that from moving that, we saw some other opportunities. Now we're going to move it again. So in other words, that person therefore wouldn't, wouldn't want to be in that environment. So it doesn't make them a bad person, but it's to say, if you don't like working with people and you want to be in a lab and work independently, as opposed to collaboratively in a group, you don't like rapid change, the innovation atmosphere is going to be hard. And if you think it's okay to tell a white lie then, or a gray lie or whatever, it might not work, right? So anyway, it's got to identify it at the beginning um, as best as you can through the interview process. Then it's part of our ongoing review process. So we have quarterly uh, check-ins with all our staff and we're constantly uh, measuring and talking culture. We've got, um, it's all over the facility so everybody can see it. It's in the common language of everything we do. It drives all our company events, the things that we do there. And again, uh, right down to uh, exit interviews. So if someone were to leave, then you, know, you want to learn as much as you can to recycle whatever you learn back into your system. But it has to be, 
to people treat culture, it's, it's almost like it's a fad, right? And that's the, always the fear. The failure that people make is they say, well, we'll hire a consultant. There's lots of consultants. We'll bring in a consultant and they'll help us do fix our culture. And we didn't do it that way. We actually had an in-house person, full-time person, uh, and we still do. We have a culture development manager. It can't be something, culture is not a, a, a check on your check on your checklist, right? You say, you know, buy a new machine, check. Um, you know, fill a car with gas, check. Culture, check. It's not something that's ever done. It's something you perpetually do. So you can't just check it off a list. Yeah, I called the consultant. They came in. They did their training. We created a statement. We stuck it on the wall and they left. That's not the way it works. Culture is an ongoing, constant thing that needs like full uh, attention and resources towards. So hence, we have a full-time culture development manager. And that's what they work on all the time. And, you know, a big part of that is the mental health of staff as well. So we're, we're, we keep tabs with everybody in the organization, making sure that everybody's doing well. Um, and use that to, that's part of our family environment and, uh, and making sure that, that everybody's in good shape. And that made a huge impact once we hit uh, COVID, obviously. So, because we had the foundation of the culture there, we already have, you know, full-time people that are involved in culture and be able to manage the, the, uh, the mental health of all of our staff and identify issues and identify ways that we can improve to improve their lives. And I always say, our, one of my sayings that, that drives me is helping people go from surviving to thriving, right? And that's, to, to me, that's what gets me up every day. If I can take somebody, give them a job here, and their life just went from like being, you know, maybe they're working at a place where they're not happy, or maybe they're unemployed, or maybe they're struggling financially. Um, and they come in here, and we're able to change their lives for the better, and they go home better than they came. That's what drives us. And that, that is part of our culture. It's not our culture statement, but that's what everybody's driving towards. So you, you have everybody in the organization understand that. How do you make sure that everybody, every coworker, everybody you're working with goes home better than they came? And we all have a responsibility to do that. Making it clear to the staff that they are the culture. The culture is not me. Culture is not Tom. The people create the culture. So you, as, as the team members, have a responsibility to uh, create and maintain that culture. And if they don't believe it or they don't embrace it, then it, it, it won't be uh, it won't be robust. So, David, I, I'm I'm going to ask you a question. I feel, I'm, I'm actually hoping you say no. Um, have you read um, either of the reports that we put out one in February one last month? The answer is no. Sorry. <laughs> Good. So the reason I wanted the answer to be no is because what you just described is basically in large part, what the conclusions of those reports were. Nothing happens by accident. It has to come from leadership. You have to engage your employees. And it's more than just a mission statement. Like you just, you kept hitting all the things that we were saying in the report. And I'm just like, wow, okay. It sounds like we might be onto something here. We being the big, we, you know, you and I, yeah. and I. so I'm very encouraged by the fact that you haven't read our reports and yet You've been doing what we've been talking about in the reports for years, it sounds like, and you're seeing some success. I am very encouraged by that, and I hope anyone listening to this episode will take – I hope you've been taking notes because that was some very good stuff on how to change something. It's like trying to – it's worse than herding cats. Changing culture is like – I don't even know what it's like. Yeah, it's it's an insanely difficult thing, and it's it's just like – you know. It's like the industry 4.0, where do you start? It's so overwhelming and it's so big, but it's so important. You know, if you don't do it, you will die. Like you won't survive in this environment. 
if you don't adopt industry 4.0 technologies and, and, and do these things. You won't survive if you don't have a culture that's going to attract the best and retain the best. Now right? you've been talking so, to Brendan, haven't you? <laughs> no, I haven't. But <laughs> That's one of his favorite quotes. In order to, serve, in order to remain competitive, our manufacturing sector needs to attract the, our best and brightest. 50% of the best and brightest are women. 50% of the best and brightest are under the age of 40. So I'm very encouraged that MPC is, has, has been doing this. And you've already had at least one trial by fire back from 2006, 2008, haven't you? Yeah. And you survived yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, the, uh, of course, COVID is, was the real test. So it was interesting, 2008, you know, we were, we were four people, we went to eight. So, you know, a culture within eight people, that's one thing. But when we hit COVID, we were 55. And now we shot up to 185 people uh, through COVID. Uh, we hired 115 students during that time frame. So when they went all back to school, we maintained a baseline staff of 126 people. And wow. um, yeah, we knew, we knew that going into, going into a massive growth curve, which we were preparing for already pre-COVID, we were like, okay, we had... We had kind of, we were running full out. We had 26 people and we were all maxed out. Economy scale was great with respect to the you know, margins. But again, we were all, you couldn't go to the next level. We didn't have enough people to go to the next level. We needed to put in more infrastructure. So we started putting in more infrastructure across the board and we doubled our staff to 55 people or almost doubled our staff. So, and uh, we'd done that pre-COVID. So we put a lot of, lot of infrastructure in place including the development of that culture. And we knew we put that infrastructure in place, knowing that we were going to go through the next scale up and we needed the appropriate people and infrastructure to do that. And, uh, you know, when we talk about how do we prepare for the scale up, the, uh, the number one thing uh, that we would focus on was how do we maintain the culture as we go through that? Well, what are the risks to the culture as we add people at a rapid pace? And because if that doesn't hold together, well, then, Everything else won't hold together. And uh, interestingly enough, we were sort of preparing for that. We're like, okay, where, where might the risk be? How do we preempt those? And how do we put ourselves into a position to minimize any um, negative impact on the culture by, by scaling quickly? And then COVID hit and we exploded. <laughs> and, uh, you know, first of all, the we had 55 people, COVID hit. Um, everybody freaked out. We were mostly automotive at the time. Uh, you know, everybody's looking to, to leadership. Like, what are we going to do? And um, just like in the recession, I'm like, well, you're either in this to survive or not. And our automotive had gone to virtually zero. And I said, you know what? we got 55 very talented people here. Uh, we have all that infrastructure and we're a vertically integrated company. So we, we have our own design. We build our own tooling. We do our own automation. We, make our, we do the actual manufacturing. We can figure it out with the people that we have. So we just have to identify what the needs are and do it. And we gave everybody the option. There's high levels of stress and anxiety, of course, across the board, um, across everybody, across the world, but within the organization. And, uh, and we said to people, you know, you can, you can go home and that's okay with us. You won't be penalized for that, right? Um, you could go home if you need to go home. And if you can, do. And if you can't, we fully understand it. And only three people decided to go home. So we had, we had landed, um, we had developed a face shield to help fight with COVID uh, and landed uh, orders for 27 million face shields. And we had to pull off the impossible. Uh, I would say making the impossible possible. And we needed everybody we could possibly think of. 
And what was interesting was the uh, the one lady um, the one lady came back as soon as she possibly could once the protocols were in place. The other gentleman, once he saw that the uh, protocols were in place and things were safe, and we had we were taking care of the staff, he came back right away. And the third one actually built an isolation room in his basement um, to keep himself separate from his parents, such that he could come back to work. So out of fifty five people, when they could all go home and collect CERB, or they can come in here, decided to be here. And the three that couldn't, couldn't for good reason and found a way to come back. So that shows you like they, they wanted to do whatever they could do to help and, and, and help with COVID and help the organization. And again, and we added, went from 55 to 185 people and it was insane. But we, I think it was our culture was our number one thing beyond our vertical integration and all our expertise without the right culture had those people turn and said, Hey, you know, 25 of them said, we're, we're just going to stay home and, and collect CERB. We couldn't have done it. So our culture is what kept them there, kept them at work and allowed us to do what we did. That is, that is about as, as indicative of what a healthy culture can do for an organization as any. Congratulations for weathering it. Well done, sir. <laughs> Thank you. If anyone is, uh, yeah, if anyone is listening here, uh, I, I think the, the explanation you just gave on culture, I think is as close one as one can get to an actual step-by-step thing. I had an intention of talking about technology and we have, and I also want to talk about Medica Park, but this discussion on culture, I think has really shed some light on the tangibles of having a strong culture and how, and the importance of needing, of it needing to evolve. Um, can we talk a little bit about Medica Park? Yeah, we can. Um, it actually, <laughs> so I, I, I need to back up a little bit to kind of tell the Please. birth of how all that happened. So that's going to tell the COVID story. Again, so we were, we were like, what are we going to do? And, you know, basically, there was a list from Trudeau and Doug Ford said, these are the things that we need. And we said, what can we do that we don't need the outside world for? There was no, like we thought, oh, yeah, we get into ventilators, but hey, we don't, we don't know about ventilators. We can make the plastics for ventilators, but we are going to need a whole pile of other people to try to help out with that. So what can we do that we could start today where we don't need anybody else? So, um, you know, when we saw the list, we saw face shields, we thought, wow, we could create a face shield um, that uh, we can have full control of because we can make an injection moldable one. And um, like I said, we have our own design capabilities, our own tooling capabilities, our own automation um, and the manufacturing expertise. So we can do the whole thing from beginning to end without any help from the outside world. And um, so we jumped on it. We started on a Monday and we started the design. By Friday, we had a patent pending design. And by Monday, uh, I wrote a grant application all weekend. And by, yep. Sorry, you said you had started it on Monday and by Friday you had a patent application? Yep. Wow. Yeah. So we, we actually, uh, we had a 3d, we had a couple 3d printers. We ended up buying six 3d printers. We installed them in the engineers homes so that we can keep printing iterations. And we're working with frontline workers, with doctors and nurses and dentists and trying the different iterations that were coming off. Uh, we did over 30 some odd iterations within the week, patent pending design by Friday, wrote a grant application for engine over the weekend. And by, uh, by Monday, I had an approval for grant funding in order to be able to tool up the program. So in seven days, we went from what are we going to do to a patent pending design to having the funding uh, from NGEN in order to be able to execute it. So that, that was, in, it was just the most insane time you've ever experienced. So the, 
so then we had the funding to do it, but we still had to execute it. And it was a mass, we didn't have any sales for the shields themselves. We just had the funding in order to be able to make the shield and how many shields are you going to need? Who knows at this point in time? So as we're, as we started tooling it, uh, we did have to collaborate with a ton of people outside that helped Honda stepped in and helped us. Uh, there's a friend of mine that works there that, that heard what we were doing and said, how do we help? Uh, we partnered with Sterling Industries um, as a medical company that had uh, access to distribution and the regulatory requirements and stuff. So we had to find others there that would fill in the gap to get to market, but to physically manufacture it, we were capable of doing all of it. So because we had a vertical integrated company, we were able to do that and move so quickly. We're like, wow, like that was one of the key things, A, one, our culture, two, our vertical integration that gave us the ability to be able to move so quickly and do what we did. We ended up landing um, orders for 27 million face shields to the federal and provincial government. We moved uh, our entire warehouse into a hockey arena. Great Canadian story. We moved uh, our automation group into an abandoned fire hall, and we converted the uh, the warehouse into a mass manufacturing PPE uh, mass manufacturing PPE facility in 60 days. So it literally went from racks on the wall and storage to a full-on manufacturing facility in 60 days. Um, on top of collaborating with some other local molders, we installed capital equipment into their facilities and, uh, and we were making shields across three different companies. So between collaborating with uh, government funding agencies, some other companies, Honda, like I said, heard what we we're doing. They stepped in and helped us with logistics and all kinds of other stuff because it was such a massive project. Anyway, so this all leading to Medica Park, everybody kept coming to us for other stuff. What about N95 masks? What about swabs? What about pipettes for the lab tests? Because they couldn't get lab consumables for doing the testing. Bottles and caps for sanitizer. They're like, we, you know, we, we have nothing to put it into. Can you guys help? And we're like, this is insane. And you, the, the, the longer we went, the more we could see how the whole global supply chain models have all just totally collapsed. And we're like, this is, this is a total disaster. Um, and we seeked other ways that we could help. And, and we did, we've, the Medica Park is one and, and our sanitizer line is another. So what happened, there was an opportunity. We had, uh, we had an agreement to purchase 10 acres of land uh, that was local from here. And there was actually 83 acres available. And um, that deal was going to fall through because, um, not because of us, but because of the other people that owned the land had lost their uh, funders because of COVID and they had walked away from it. So they couldn't close it. And we were, we saw it as a huge opportunity. I knew in my heart, just like in the recession, at the end of the day, you're like, you just know it's right. You just go, there's something about that and we have to do this. And it's, it really is intuition, gut feel, whatever you want to call it. And I said, there's something about this. We've got to obtain this land. So we found a way to fund getting the land, which was what I call 3D cash flow chest. <laughs> and uh, we obtained the whole 83 acres. And we did that to be able to maintain our 10 acres that we wanted for future expansion. And then as all these other examples of the supply chain falling apart were coming up, that's where it birthed the idea of Medica Park. So we said, look, if what we, why we were so successful in the shields was because of our vertical integration and shortening that supply chain and where we were able to do everything. What if we built a medical innovation park where it was a vertically integrated company? So you got 83 acres, you have a million square feet of med tech companies that all complement each other in one way, shape or form or the entire supply base is in that, in that park. So if I'm making a 95 mass, there's a meltblown film guy across the parking lot, right? So you vertically integrate companies, shorten that supply chain and where it makes sense to co-locate co organizations uh, for economy reasons and for environmental reasons, then do so. 
So, um, you know, ecosystem is a big word now. We started with that, you know, early in. We said, you know, creating an ecosystem of med tech companies that allows us to build anything that's required for Canada's health security needs in any sort of form of emergency. So that's not um, just a, a respiratory pandemic. What if there's war? What if it's an neurological pandemic? What if it's a meteorite, a natural disaster? What are we going to need in order to secure Canada's health security needs? We need to review the entire supply chain and identify everything that we would need and find ways to secure that here in Canada. And this is where Medica Park comes in. So it would allow us to, to vertically integrate companies and processes, which allow you to reduce cost, be globally competitive worldwide, and have a positive impact in the environment at the same time. So that was really the birth of Medica Park. And uh, we're now building out a really another great example of that. So Shield seems like a very simple example, but sanitizer is a really, really good example. So we're now building out the first of its kind advanced manufacturing system for hand sanitizer. Uh, it's a fully vertically, vertically integrated line. We've developed a, a new method of manufacturing bottles where uh, typically a bottle is made by you, uh, a PET bottle. Anyways, you have a preform, which looks like a test tube that's typically made in China. Uh, it gets shipped from there to Vancouver, and then it goes onto a truck to Toronto, and then it goes into another warehouse at a blow molder. They blow, they heat it up, they blow it into a bottle, they put it into another warehouse, and then they ship the bottle over to a fill company who either brings in the sanitizer or they make the sanitizer. Um, and they so they bring the bottles into their warehouse, and then they fill the bottle, label it, package it, and it hits the skin. So we looked at that that supply chain model and went, "Holy cow, that takes like three months." Uh, and we're and never during a pandemic, we said, well, how do we vertically integrate that process and bring it all under one roof? And there was a couple of things missing, which was the manufacturing process of the bottle being this two-step process. So we worked with a, a company called Megon Machines. It's here in Toronto. And there's a technology we've been working on as cube technology. And we said, how do we apply that technology to make a bottle in a one-step process? And we determined that that was feasible in, 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 in tooling and engineering and some innovation. So we said, okay, if we can make the bottle in-house in a one-step process, so now we injection mold the preform, rotate, blow into a bottle, go directly into a fill line that gets filled, capped, labeled, and into a box, all in one facility. So here's the stats for you. We trace the pellet of plastic. We take a pellet of plastic, we drop it into a hopper, which then makes the preform, Right. So that normally starts in China. So if you trace that pellet of plastic, it travels 15,000 kilometers before it gets into a box for, for someone to actually consume the product. It goes through four or five different companies before it even gets there, right? The preform company is a separate company. You got trucking companies, shipping companies. You got uh, the blow company. You got fill companies. So it goes through four to five different companies. It goes through five, 500,000 square feet of warehouses and manufacturing facilities. And it takes three months to get there. Our system, instead of 1,500 kilometers or 15,000 kilometers, is 100 feet that pellet travels. Instead of four to five companies, it goes through one company. Instead of 500,000 square feet, it's in 15,000 square feet. And instead of three months, it hits the skid in 18 minutes. Wow. Okay. This is what I'm hearing. A 15,000 kilometer trip is somehow more cost effective than making it here. At least that's been the traditional thinking, right? My question for you is how the hell is that possible? Because it seems like your system is the one that would make most sense. Yet 
it's 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 almost revolutionary. How do we mass produce what you're doing and make what you're doing the norm? Yeah, yeah, it's a good question. Um, the other thing I just wanted to add to those stats was it saves five thousand tons of CO two as well a year. Oh, of course it does. Of course yeah. it does. Yeah, so it's like we're being uh, like we're being identified as a, a clean tech company, right? And we've actually received some funding for that as well. So you know. So I will answer your question there, but you got to, so by bringing all this together, we can now be cost-effective globally, right? You can imagine like we have now the margins of the company that makes the preform. We have the margins of the blow mold company. We have the margins of all the shipping that was done. We have the margins of the fill company. And we have the margins of the sanitizer company all under one roof. So now we can make a bottle of sanitizer that's globally cost-effective, but yet still high quality made in made in uh, made in Canada. So this is when you're saying, so exactly what you're saying there was saying, well, how many millions of these preforms do we need to make in China where that somehow made sense one? So historically it made sense, right? But it doesn't make any sense today. And this is where we need to trace these global supply chains now because technology has changed. So yeah, you know what? It's just, it's kind of like people say, well, how come you do it that way? And say, well, because we've always done it that way. Well, what was the reason why we decided to do that? Well, back then wheels were square. And uh, things didn't roll very well. So we say, okay, well, guess what? We have round wheels now. We actually have, you know, rockets that will put people in orbit. And, you know, things have changed. And we need to revisit. And, you know, that's people talk about it all the time. We'll just do it that way because we've always done it that way. But technology has changed so rapidly in the last decade. It's insane. It's a total vertical exponential curve. So you need not only before we used to have to reevaluate how we do things, maybe every decade. Now you need to reevaluate how you're doing things every six months to put it in perspective because things are changing so quickly, not only from industry 4.0, but the internet of things and just technology that's become available, uh, the ability to integrate things to vertically integrate processes because now you're, you're able to do that. So in the case of the sanitizer, we had to develop a new advanced manufacturing system to be able to make this bottle in line with the fill line, right? It didn't exist before. There's different sort of ways of doing it, but it doesn't work from a capital standpoint, space, energy, uh, and output. So we had to develop something new in order to be able to vertically integrate it. And, and that we've done. So you have to be able to develop, I always say sanitizer itself is a commodity. You can make it in your kitchen. You, you buy some ethanol, some water, and a couple of things you put it into a bottle. So the, the, the sanitizer itself is, is a commodity, but the manufacturing process hasn't been revisited in like a hundred years. No one's looked at it. So what we've done is we've innovated the process, right? So you need to innovate either both, either or, or both the product and the process in order to be globally competitive. And we need to revisit everything we're doing now. And that's what we haven't done in a long time. We have in some cases, but it's never become so evident until now when this pandemic hit, when everything fell apart. So, you know, there was a model where it made sense for somebody to make a preform over in China because the tooling price was a quarter of the cost. The, uh, you know, they're, they have subsidies for materials and it just made sense. And thing is the guy who makes the preform has a different um, technology level or understanding than, than the blow technology. They're different. So the guy who makes the preform doesn't have blow experience and the guy who has blow experience doesn't have preform experience. So you have to have companies that are willing to like bring those together, right? So that's, that's what we've done. We said, hey, we're an injection molder and we can do preforms. And the blow side, we can learn that. We can develop a new process that now allows us to build a system that we can have the output match the tack time of filled lines, right? And do it in a very small footprint and give you full control of the process. 
so yeah, it's it's just it's it's part of it is it used to make sense, and it used to make sense because well, shipping was cheap, and you know, tooling was less expensive, and labor was less expensive. But with Industry 4.0 and lights out manufacturing and new advanced technologies, we need to reevaluate everything we're doing. So, like the sanitizer line, when you look at that example, that's why I wanted to tell you about that because that truly is the demonstration model of what Medica Park is, right? We've taken four different companies, we put them into one. So how do we do that with everything and anything that's needed for health security needs? And that's what Medica Park is supposed to be about. So David, I want to be cognizant of time here real quick. What's next for MPC, Medica Park, you, what's next? Well, we're, we're building out that sanitizer line as we're speaking now. So uh, the big focus is, uh, is completing that development and getting that launched. We've got a brand new 45,000 square foot facility that we put up during COVID. That was the other crazy thing we did. Pre-COVID, we were 26,000 square feet. We added 45,000 square feet. Brand new building. Uh, It's a brand new state-of-the-art building. It's got a 4,000 square foot clean room in it. Obviously, we have the ability of handling flammable liquids and uh, for the sanitizer purposes. So we'll have a fill line, bottle manufacturing process. The the clean room is capable of uh, for molding uh, medical components. So, and uh, we've added 19 new molding machines to our system through the whole process. And a lot of that was to, was what was purchased in order to develop the shields and, and now the sanitizer. So we've over doubled our fleet of, of molding machines. So we have a brand new facility. We have a lot of capacity because of course the shields are done now. We've made the order and we'll still do shields going forward, but a very low, uh, low volume. So we're accelerating our, our med tech, our medical manufacturing uh, in our clean room and our, our machine hall. And uh, we'll continue down the road of not only sanitizer. So this is really a demonstration line of a fill line. Still having sanitizer as a need, uh, but we can fill anything. So we can have a proof of concept. So we hope to revolutionize the, uh, the, uh, the fill world as we go forward. And um, so that's that'll be a big part of it. And we will be developing... Um, exactly what we're saying, how we reevaluate the entire supply chain, we're, we're going to be developing another organization, which is called an applications company that will be doing exactly that, reevaluating global supply chains, identifying new ways of doing that, applying advanced technology to be able to uh, reduce and vertically integrate these supply chains so that we can have a larger impact on, on our economy here in Canada. Uh, so that'll allow us to be able to make products that are uh, globally competitive and have a, an environmental impact reduction. And so we'll be doing that sort of on a larger scale as we go forward. And of course, the development of, uh, of Medica is, uh, is a huge project and uh, hope to get ourselves prepared before the, uh, the next pandemic uh, comes. David, I want to thank you again for your time. This has been very informative, and I'm probably going to have a lot to unpack when I go back and edit this. Thank you for sharing everything you're up to, and I very much look forward to connecting again. Yeah, you're welcome. Thanks for, thanks for having me.